Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ruler is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler and this is Ruler Conversations. I'm joined by Ruler's roving photojournalist, James Start. We're going to be talking about the latest edition of Ruler, which is out on Friday this week, and also Ruler Live, which happens next week. It is all go, James. How are you? I'm pretty good. Finally, this long, long Indian summer here in Paris is finally given way to full-on autumn. I can almost feel winter coming. It's just grey and raining all day long, like it usually is at this time of year. City of lights, love, and slightly overcast clouds this week. So, Ruler 123, the Futurology edition, is out this week. And we'll get to that, but first, drop everything and buy your tickets for Ruler Live, which takes place between Thursday, November the 2nd and Saturday, November the 4th at the Truman Brewery in Shoreditch. Ruler is the world's best cycling magazine and Ruler Live is the world's best cycling event. It's bigger and better than ever this year. There are amazing guests, including Geraint Thomas, all three Paris-Roubaix fam winners on stage at once, Vincenzo Nibali, Matej Mohoric, Pauline Ferrand-Prévost and many, many more. There are dozens of exhibitors showing the very latest bike tech and also collections of vintage bikes, photography galleries, a bar, hundreds of other like-minded people, plus us, the editorial staff of Ruler. James, what have you most been looking forward to at Ruler Life? Well, first, just the vibe, because it's just so much fun. And it's really a great celebration of cycling and everything we love. I guess on a personal level this year, I've been asked to be more involved with the uh, the photo galleries. We're going to have a nice exhibit of all the winners of the, the Mark Gunther Award and overseeing that. So I can't wait to see that actually get hung up on the walls. I'll also have a series of my portraits that I've taken over the year of cycling champions. So I really look forward to seeing that big and on the walls. But there's some other stuff. I love, obviously, the, the vintage stuff I love. My friends, uh, the, the Belgian, um, do we call them? I guess they are true street artists, puncher. They're the guys who do the, uh, the silhouettes of the the cyclist faces on the roads of, of the cobblestones. I mean, if that's not street art, what is it, right? Literally art on the street. Exactly. It? They'll be back, so I can't wait. To, I, they're really nice guys. I think they do really original work, so I'll be really excited to see them. 
going to listen to some of the talks. Garrett is just such a giant on the sport now. You know, still in there. Just signed a new two-year deal with uh, Ineos, I guess. I mean, he just got second in the Giro d'Italia this year. I mean, one of his best results ever. He's shown no signs of backing down. So I think that's going to be a fascinating talk. I'm also looking forward to finally catching up with uh, Pauline ferrand Prévost. I've been trying to track her down for about the last year for the magazine. But we'll finally get to see her at Ruler Live. I'm, I got a little time with her too. So there's a lot of stuff. For both of us, Ruler Live last year was our first. This time we, we kind of know the lay of the land a bit better. And what I'm looking forward to is you know, the same again. All the same amazing exhibits and amazing talks. And like you, the, the vibe. But also we've got a bunch of new stuff happening this year. We've got so much good stuff going on the stage. We can't include everything we want to. So we've got a second stage, the other stage, with various talks, book signings. You're doing a presentation about photography on there. So that's a, that's an addition this year. Looking forward to the expanded bar area. What's better than a bar? A bigger bar. And also the Ruler Creative Hub. We're going to have the Ruler office out on the floor of the exhibition this year. So people can come and have a chat, can have a chinwag, give us feedback buy us drinks, buy us cake. And we're there to just, just help and answer any questions about what we do. And we felt rather than being hidden away in a back office, it'd be better to be out in the show right in the middle of it. So I'm looking forward to all of those things and more. There's a special deal for loyal listeners to Rulo Conversations. If you go and buy a ticket on Rulo.cc, enter the code RLPODCAST, you will get 10% off the entry price. But move fast because we're running out of tickets and we hope to see you there. So, James, the latest edition of Rouleur, number 123, the Futurology edition. It's landing with subscribers on Friday this week, uh, recording on Monday. This podcast should be out by Wednesday. We think a lot about the future in cycling, don't we? We're kind of we're always on to the next thing. It's a sport that never stands still, either in terms of the evolution of the races or from the technology standpoint. And there's a load of bikes featured in this magazine, which was modern as they come. The first thing I want to say is that the cover of the Futurology edition of Ruler, designed by our art editor, Henry Cadell, and featuring illustrated tarot cards made by Rodrigo Cerna, is an absolute work of art, isn't it? It absolutely is. I mean, Enrique, he's so creative and he has, you know, you can tell he just embraces every new cover design and comes up with these ideas and and it, it just, it, it, you know, we kind of work through it, playing with different colors and the background and stuff. And it just looks better and better. And he nailed it. Yeah, it's subtle and smart. And it's Rouleur. The tarot cards were taken from a set designed for one of the features within the future of bike transfers by the artist Rodrigo Cerna. And they're so cool. We're probably going to have a bunch of those printed up, aren't we? And we can start doing our own tarot readings with uh, with, with those but first big feature in the magazine, James, is yours. It's an interview with Greg Van Avermaet, the recently retired Belgian cyclist. The future as a professional cyclist has run out from it. Now he's contemplating the rest of his life as an ex-cyclist. So you went to have one last interview with Greg Van Avermaet at the Canada races this year. How was he and what were your takeaways? Well, Greg is, is always great. I mean, I think I've said this before. In the press, when we call him Golden Greg, and we, he got that nickname, I said, did you know we call you Golden Greg? And he said, no, I didn't. And he thought it was the Olympics. I said, no, Greg, we gave you that name well before the Olympics because you've always been golden with us in the press. You're always available. 
You always give good answers. You're a straight shooter. You know, I mean, what is there not to love about Greg Van Avermaet? And it reflects the way he races bikes. I mean, he's just a no-nonsense bike rider, looking for opportunities, maximizing everything he can. Uh, he was always one of my favorite riders. And it was great to sit down and catch up with him here because he was just, he's always been just a class act and a class rider. And no, he's not wasting any time. I, I saw today he's already done his first triathlon. Crazy, huh? I don't know where he found the time to be running or swimming while he was still racing, but he's a tremendous athlete. He, you know, he, he had a real future in, in soccer uh, or football. Uh, if you would like, but he's like Sagan in that they're just like they're natural born athletes first and they ended up choosing the bike and they can do so many things. So anyway, it's, he's a great guy. He's a real family guy. He just said, I've been selfish enough and taken enough time away from my family. It's time to be with them. And uh, he wants to take some time off to travel. He said, you're not going to be seeing me in any sports director's cars anytime soon, but you might be seeing him on in different parts of the world because he wants to travel and, and, and be with his family. It's funny, actually, because you described him as a natural-born athlete. My impression of him was that I'm not sure he was a natural... I mean, he's obviously very physically talented, but I think his achievements were built on hard work, stoicism, and just being willing to keep on banging away rather than special physical talent. Like When I look at riders like... Matteo van der Poel, his genetics are good. He's he's just a natural athlete. Obviously, he works very hard as well, but I get the sense of a natural athlete from him. Same with riders like Tane Pogacar, who's immensely physically gifted. With Van Avermaet, it was equal parts, I think, physical talent, hard work, and a bit of je ne sais quoi as well. Absolutely. No, when I said he's you know just a tremendous athlete first, it's because he started out in soccer and was already at a very high level. I mean, he could have gone pro in soccer. He was right right there on that. And then he switched to cycling, and he was even better. So a natural-born athlete in that he's just athletic. He's very good at a lot of athletic endeavors. He does have good genealogy for to be a professional cyclist, doesn't he? He's absolutely you know genetically uh, gifted, if you will. I mean, his grandfather raced with Fausto Coppi. How good is that, right? His father was in the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, cycling was in his blood. It was like, you know, how did you avoid being a cyclist? You know, and he really wanted to play soccer or football, if you will. And his family embraced that. But he said the day he decided to, to become a cyclist, he said his family was very, very happy. That said, he obviously has tremendous natural ability. All the guys that are at that level do. Did he, he maybe had a little less than somebody like Sagan or some of these guys to make that last stretch to win those monuments, to win the Olympic Games? That was a lot of hard, hard work. Every teammate I ever talked to said he's one of the hardest working guys in show business. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I always had a big soft spot for Greg Van Avermaet. I tend not to have so many favourites, but I liked him purely because I had that impression that there was more than physical talent that made him such a good cyclist. And he was also a kind of, a bit of a precursor to the Wout van Aert, Mathieu van der Poel kind of all-rounders that we're seeing in the sport these days. He obviously wasn't on the same level, even as Peter Sagan in that way. But I do remember he, you know, when he was a very young rider, he, he won the points jersey at the Vuelta and was a very good sprinter. Also was good at classics, emerged to be, for one season, he was the best classics rider in the world. You know, he won... Everything except for the Tour of Flanders one. He won E3, Gembevelgem, Paris-Roubaix. Just missed out on the Tour of Flanders. And his Olympic Games victory was something he shouldn't have been able to do. He he wasn't physically made for that course, but he got around that by smart riding, patience, and 
diligence. And that's why I always had a soft spot for him, because I think he he achieved in spite of a few limitations rather than finding it all very easy. Yeah, and it wasn't easy. Like Sagan had that capacity to make it look easy. I'm not saying it always was for Peter, but he had the capacity to make it look easy uh, because he had just that incredible explosive power and he was such an acrobat on the bike. But Greg didn't quite have that. Looking back, you know, he said, obviously Sagan was my greatest rival in a sense because they were together a lot in the finals and they never played games with each other. They just got in that final. No pulling your punches. I went to all these races in Quebec and Montreal, and they were always in the finals there. They never pulled any punches. They were very different people. I don't know they'd have a whole lot to sit down and chat about at dinner or anything, but on the bikes, they had immense respect for each other. And and Greg, you know, he's, he's very modest, and he said, my best days, I could push somebody as great as Peter Sagan to the limits and on occasion even beat him. And um, on several occasions... Um, the harder and longer the race was, the better at Greg's chances guy. I think he underestimated his own talent there, but he's just, you know, a modest guy by nature. No, I've, I've found him to be a very honest race. And I mean that in terms of he, he didn't play games. He didn't hold back. He liked bike races to be a competition to find who the strongest was on that day. So he was very straightforward. And he never moved down to Monaco or to a tax haven or to somewhere warmer. He, you know, he stayed living in, I think it's Dendermonde in uh, mid- middle of nowhere in Belgium, just stayed living there his whole life. I remember going to going around to his house to interview him once, and he was just happy to have us around, take photographs, sit in the garden, have a chat. He was in his element there. He was, he was at home being himself, and I was, I was appreciated that with him. He was, he was very good with journalists. Yeah, it was down golden, huh? That's why we call him golden. But yeah, as a bike rider, he was one of those guys, he just took the racing to the others. He said, we're going to go for a bike race now. We're racing. Game on, let's go. I talked to Jim Okowitz, who was long time his uh, general manager at BMC, and he said I was one of his favorite riders, and he's had a lot of great ones because he was so easy to work with on the team and always gave his all, and you knew he was going for, he was going to be in the mix till the end. And, you know, and Jim said, yeah, I mean, he's very honest, sometimes too honest. Sometimes he worked too hard, uh, gave too much and, and came up, but he just didn't know how to do it any other way. So he's a real bike racer, a bike racer, I'd say. And he's also good at the Tour de France in a way that not many riders are. For climbers and GC riders, the Tour is pretty straightforward. They rise to the top through physical talent and being strong on that terrain. Van Avermaet, he had two great stints in the yellow jersey. He won several stages over the course of his career. He was not quite on the same level as Fabian Cancelar, but Cancelar was another one of those riders who was good at the Tour de France. Like Van Avermaet would show up, do his stuff, and end up in the yellow jersey. And on, on one occasion, wore the yellow jersey and then went into a break on a mountain stage just to show the jersey. actually ended up gaining more time and keeping the jersey an extra few days. And he, was, he shouldn't have been that good at the Tour de France. It wasn't a race that was at all suited to him. I think maybe... The modern tour, the last couple of years, would have been a bit more suited to him, but he's he was past his best by the time the terrain shifted. But he he somehow found a way. Absolutely. His way was different than Cancellara's, I would say, though. I mean, they're similar in that they were both classics riders who also managed to get the yellow jersey for, what, 10, 15 days during their career, right? But Cancellara had the, the time trial to, to rock back on. And when he got it, he usually got it by nailing the prologue or the first time trial or the TTT with the team. And then he would carry it. Whereas the two times that Van Arverma got, he had to go out and get it. He had to go out and find it. He had to make those breaks. And he had to be the best place rider in those breaks to get that yellow jersey. But that's quintessential bike racing. I mean, it's looking for opportunity. It's seizing the moment. It's making circumstances happen for you. And you're getting into a situation going, 
what can I do here? What am I, what, what can I make out of this move? Can I get the yellow jersey? Or am I just going for the stage win? Maybe I have to settle for a polka dot jersey for a few days, whatever. But what can I do to maximize my chances here? And Greg was a master at that. Lastly, you talk in the magazine also about a portrait you took of him quite a few years ago, probably when he was at his peak, when he was still racing with BMC. We've put the picture over a double page spread in the magazine, but just talk us through the process of getting that brilliant photograph. I've been the photographer at the uh, the Grand Prix of Quebec in Montreal since the beginning, and, and Greg has been to almost every one of them. A lot of times the Belgian press would ask me to get a, a picture of him for a feature, because this was always a race before the World Championships and stuff. So I'm I'd gotten used to taking a picture of him here or there. And one day I said, hey, I got a great spot for us this year. And he kind of looked at me and said, okay, good. You know, whatever. And he came back from the ride. We were in the uh, uh, Chateau de Frontenac, which is one of the most famous hotels in the world. It sits atop the hillside of Quebec overlooking the, the St. Lawrence River. And it's just spectacular. And this old historic hotel, this is where I believe Churchill and Roosevelt signed their accords to go enter into World War II together. So, I mean, we're talking really a place with history. And there was this little room in the back I saw with like 19th century paintings and this chair that looked almost like a throne. And I said, Golden Greg in this throne, what, what better, right? As soon as he saw it, he said, okay, you know, he, and he just struck this pose, relaxed. He had his, his head, he had his sneakers on, his shoes in his hand. And it was this gorgeous picture in the depth of this, this, this old room and I showed it to him and said oh man that's really great you know I said well, you know, I'll send you a copy if you want yeah it'd be great so I went up raced up because the Belgians wanted it for the Belgian edition sent it off and I sent it to Phoebe Ames who's the, the press officer at the time and I said here Phoebe this is for Greg he said to send it to you uh, and you pass it on I said oh great thanks for that oh by the way you can't use it uh, he doesn't have the right sneakers on they're not the team official sneakers now one thing you didn't know is that Greg had actually really bad uh, problems with his feet down with his heels. I'm not sure exactly with the bone spurs or something, but had really struggled to, to find shoes that fit him. And I, you know, I wasn't thinking about that when I was taking the picture. I said, Phoebe, that's already gone. I mean, what are we going to do about this? He said, oh my gosh. And I said, that's such a great picture. I can't believe this. And then she, she said, what if he did it again? And I said, what if he did it again? What if he got dressed and put the right shoes on? I said, yeah whatever and three minutes later i got the email back said he's finishing lunch he'll be down afterwards same kit the right color sneakers i'm not saying which ones they were and you know looked at the picture struck the same pose we did it click baba boom and it went back out to to the world and um i actually made a print of that and gave it to him because i was very proud of that and it's such a great story and every time i see phoebe or or greg we always have a laugh about that one because it was it was a really stressful moment, and I was really proud of that picture. It was one of the best pictures I'd taken all year and one of my favorite portraits ever. It's going to be on display at Ruler Live, and not to be able to, to use it was just a heartbreaker. And this was 2018. Greg was winning everything. He was as big as it ever got for him. You know, how many guys at that level would say, okay, I'll get dressed again. Come on back down and do the picture again. Greg did. We'll have to have a special room out the back of Ruler Live for the sponsor incorrect trainers so that's greg van avermaet another rider we interviewed in this edition of ruler is a different kind of rider taco van der horn so richard abraham one of our contributors fantastic writer uh, who knows the sport inside out pitched me taco van der horn quite a while back and said there's this guy who's got a poster of graham O'Brie on his wall and he's he's really innovative and he's he's obsessed with kind of finding 
details and games where other people don't find them. And I thought that would be an interesting addition to the Futurology magazine because it kind of covers the more technological side of the sport. So that's Taco van der Horn. Richard wrote me the piece and you went to Andorra to take some photographs of them. So before we talk about the piece and Taco, tell me about the experience of going up there to shoot <laughs> Taco. Uh, it, it was unforgettable. The other element about Taco was that he has this old VW camper bus and he's committed to the, to making this his altitude training camp, driving this thing up at 3,000 meters or whatever and, and hanging out for a few weeks up there. And uh, I guess, you know, washing in a mountain creek or something, whatever. So I said, this is going to be, you know, an amazing prop, right, for the picture. So I called him. I said, yeah, you come on up. Uh, we're trying to figure out. I said, but there's a problem. My Volkswagen isn't going to make it up that climb. It's It's got to go in the shop and we got to get it fixed. I don't know what's going on. And I said, well, uh, well uh, how are we going to do this? At the end of the day, we, we found a... Uh, a place that wasn't too far from him, uh, just a mountain road, a gravel mountain road. And we took it up there. But even then, we were kind of calculating how long it would take for <laughs> the poor thing to overheat. And um, he actually took it up, put it on, and rode his bike back down. And then I took him up. He got it. You know, so we got it up in different heats, I guess you would say. I just thought that the, the VW was so much like, said so much about who he was uh, that we had to put that in the in the piece. And it was, you know, obviously a pretty great piece. And then, you know, you walk in and he's got all these album covers, John Coltrane, uh, Jimi Hendrix. I mean, he's, he's a lover of music. Just got a lot of interests that were really interesting. It was a great story by Richard, a great find by Richard, because not that many people know about uh, Taco really outside of his, his crazy name that everybody loves. Crazy name for us. And just a lovely, lovely person. And he's also very courageous. He had a bad accident a few years ago. He was concussed for like, I don't know how many months, he came back and his first race back, he won. And in Flanders, he crashed again and he's uh, suffered a concussion. He's been concussed again and he's determined to come back and win again. And uh, after talking with him, I don't see why he won't. No, it's funny, actually, because he is interesting to me in the same way that Greg Van Avermaet was, that he is finding a way to succeed in bike racing despite not having the supreme physical assets of the big champions. You know, with Greg Van Avermaet, the answer was work harder. Uh, with Taco van der Horn, it's work smarter. And he's an archetypally modern rider, in a way. He's not a super strong guy who relies on numbers. He relies on ingenuity, aerodynamics, and research, whether that's research into his aerodynamics or research into training or research into his own physical capacities or research into the courses and looking at where in a race that he can make a difference because he knows what he can do and what he's good at and he needs to weaponize that in order to make a difference to other riders and in spite of again not being the most physically gifted rider he has carved out a pretty successful career he's won seven times yeah he's not a, a huge race winner but he has won a giro stage he's won several stages in the benelux tour and he came within a tyre's width of winning a Tour de France stage up against Simon Clark, another very clever rider, in that cobbled stage in the 2022 Tour de France. So Taco van der Horn has done very well. It's purely by looking at where he can make gains. I mean, he's experimented with different handlebars. He's looked at his position. He's just seems to be one step ahead of many of his peers out of necessity. Absolutely. A really smart guy. I think you hit on something there. We all love the great champions and love watching Matthew Vander, 
whole pound away uh, on the world championship course or whatever. But most of us aren't made up that way. And these guys are the ones that give somebody like me always were so inspiring because they're like, okay, you might not be a world beater, but if you're smart and you work hard and you always seize the opportunity that presents itself, you can get in that break. You can make, make something happen for yourself. And those are such sources of inspiration for me, not just on the bike, but in life. And I sense he's found a home at Antelmarchi, Wanty Gobert, that suits him. It's not exactly a left field team, but it's got a, a lot of characters on the team. It seems to be a team where individuals can thrive. There is no machine deciding how things are done. He was at Jumbo Visma before, and he seemed, though he's a, a good rider and I'm sure he, he did well on Jumbo Visma. I sense he's happier at Antelmarchi where his intellect can flourish and he's not part of a greater plan where there's a lot of people doing a lot of things all towards one goal. He's trying to cut his own path and Antelmarchi gives him the freedom to thrive in that sense. So I, I think that's probably the right team for him in a way that Jumbo Visma wasn't. They're a very eclectic team almost as eclectic as their jersey, right? Uh, it kind of goes in all kinds of directions. But I think it's a good home for a lot of guys. I was talking with Guillaume Martin, who was at Cofidis. We were talking about teams, and he said, you know, want, I had really good years at Wanty. Lilian Calmejean said, I feel like I finally found my home here. Biniam Gourmet, I did a story on him just uh, last week for, for, the, for the web. And, you know, we did a big feature on earlier in the year for the magazine, and then, he, he, you know, he had a lot of misfortune this year. But the team was behind him the whole time and said, hey, you got a contract for several years. Don't you stress now. You know, we don't expect you to repeat all of the incredible things you did last year. You're still young. You're still growing. We're here with you to help you grow. And they were with him the whole time and they still are. So I see a very smart, sensitive and sensible team that can gives a lot of guys that wouldn't have a chance elsewhere or wouldn't have the same chance. An amazing opportunity. So that's Taka van der Horn. Words by Richard Abraham, photographs by James Starr. And just looks like a really interesting guy. I love the photographs of him with his records. It just shows a hinterland that often professional cyclists either don't have or are reluctant to show. So really appreciated that. So from bike riders to bikes, there's a feature again by you, James, called the, the Time Trial Collector. You pitched this to me a while back. It's a collection of old bikes. And the thing about these bikes is that they were all once futuristic, but they're futuristic from a long time ago. So they've aged in a way that's kind of quite quite interesting. So tell me more about this collection of time trial bikes. Well, I found this guy just on social media, and Sebastian, and he had these amazing bikes. I was like, I kind of remember when that came out, or I kind of remember this or that, or did I remember that? I don't know. And I chatted with him a bit and discovered he was passionate about all these time trial bikes from the late 80s up to the mid-90s until what was called, I believe, the Lugano Accord in 1996. And up until that point, it had been kind of open bar for bike design in terms of aerodynamics and all of this. And then they really clamped down and made a lot of restrictions. So what he had, or I saw in his collection, was this sort of timepiece when the future was wide open for bike designers. And they were being so creative and pushing all kinds of limits. I don't know all of these bikes actually went that fast, but that was their, their goal. That was the attempt. And 
So they were, uh, you know, it's sort of a timepiece and a study of the future, if you'd like. And then even though they would certainly not break any world records today, outside of perhaps Chris Boardman's Lotus, I still think that looks like a pretty fast bike. They were aesthetically so intriguing that looking back on them 20, 30 years ago now, they were just like, who would have ever thought about that? I mean, there's this Tomasini fork that's got like its own front whole triangle on it. It was the most crazy thing. Several of the bikes were by this amazing um, bike designer, Pacenti in Italy, who worked on the uh, with Cinelli on the, on the Epic Laser, which was a great time trial profile bike, basically a prototype for all of the big world hour records in the 80s. But he didn't stop there. He went to these just crazy designs one after the other. So I just thought it was a an amazing timepiece for what was such a forward-looking moment in bicycle design. It was. It was the first time, really, through the late 80s and early 90s, where, for the first time, the traditional two-triangle shape of the bike with along with the fork was being challenged. It's partly a, a, a function of the new materials that are being developed, like carbon fibre was, at that time, a, a modern material you know it'd been used in the aerospace industry and then went through to engineering and 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 cycling and it's a function of the fact that you could now start to make frames in these different shapes that weren't built along preformed tubes i love the fact that the the bianchi time trial bike there it looks elegant the lines are kind of liquid and smooth the celeste color is amazing and yet it's got toe straps and clips it's such a great combination of a modern frame and disc wheels, along with what the reality was at the time, which is that most people hadn't graduated onto clipless pedals yet. Obviously, Chris Boardman's Lotus bike is, it is one of the most beautiful bikes ever designed. And you photographed it from the working side rather than the, the smooth side. The side the bike is usually photographed from shows the one-sided front fork and rear stay, but You've photographed it from the side where there is no fork and there is no stay, so the wheels look unattached. I just find the lines of that bike and the, even the colour scheme, the shiny black colour scheme, it's just so futuristic looking. The other bikes, like the Long Jalabers look time trial bike, just outrageous really. It looks like a tri- like the triathlon bikes look these days. There's so many extra aero parts on it that it almost doesn't look like a bike. Then a bike that's just right stuck on the tipping point between pure tradition and modernity, which is Laurent Fignon's Raleigh bike, which is fairly standard, but it's got this big aerofoil on the saddle, which just makes it look totally, totally off off the wall. So amazing collection of bikes, which, like you said, they're, they're both achingly modern, they also look retro. It's a really funny combination, isn't it? Yeah, I was. I just knew that when I saw this guy, I found him. I just, uh, I knew one day we had, we had just. It was just a question of time before we found the right theme, the right, you know, that it was going to really sing. You know, the guy's just passion. He's, he, you know, and some of the stories of him chasing these bikes down and trying to get them and all were really wonderful. And he treats them with such respect and has a whole floor of his his house is devoted to exhibiting them. And he was really happy to have us come to spread the word about his, his passion. For this edition of the magazine, I interviewed Jay Vine, the UAE cyclist from Australia. And he's another 
archetypally modern rider, James. He's a kind of product of the post-pandemic era in cycling because he famously got his professional break, his World Tour contract, or, or his professional contract by winning the Zwift Academy. And obviously the perception of that is that he's a numbers cyclist, that he's, you know, he can put out numbers on a stationary bike and therefore got a professional contract but actually pretty good cyclist as well pretty experienced cyclist he's been a cyclist for quite some time fell in love with the sport as a young man and quickly developed he moved to the uae team from our interview he was pretty down on his year um, on his 2023 he developed a knee injury in the uae tour missed the spring races got back for the giro but had a kind of disappointing giro and crashed out of the welter and he was looking back on his year thinking, well, it's not honestly been the best. At the same time, he won the Tour Down Under. He won the National Time Trial Championships. And after we went to press on the magazine, he won a stage in Turkey at the very, very end of the season. So he kind of sandwiched a disappointing stretch of time with very good results. And I think he seems to have found a good place on UAE. He's kind of at that level, same level that, that George Bennett, was when he was hired by UAE, not the Grand Tour leader, but a rider who can envisage stage wins in mountain stages and Grand Tours, who can target the podium of a Grand Tour. He can, I think, with his time trialling gifts and climbing gifts, he can target any week-long stage race in the calendar. And he also has ambitions in races like uh, Liège, Baston Liège and in Lombardia. So what's your, what's your perception of him having read the interview and having watched him develop as a professional? First, he's obviously a big motor. He does have the numbers in terms of watts and what he can put out, which opens a lot of doors. I think he's probably being a little bit hard on himself. I mean, he had some misfortune this year, but he still came around with some 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 victories all through the season, which is, is very telling. Obviously, he's on an amazing team, one of the two very best teams, but it's, it's a crowded house. So it's going to be a question of uh, how much time will he have to ride for himself how much time does he have to to learn and adapt he's at a great place to learn and adapt but he's also going to be required to work and work for guys like Tadej Pogacar and so it'll it'll sort of depend how he settles I'd say the verdict's still out in terms of his own goals and ambitions that's very true I mean on the positive side, when he won his Welter stage uh, the one in the mist in 2022 he did so by attacking the GC group on the final climb and winning a la pedal. Really, he, he outpowered Remco Evenepoel, all the other GC riders in 2022 on a mountaintop finish. And I think physically he has the gifts. But I think the most interesting thing about Jay Barn, and what I like most about him is he's a very open book. He's a very open interview. He's very honest. This has got him into trouble in the past he is quite unfiltered and he says what he's thinking whether that fits with what other people might find palatable to hear what the team might want him to say and I find that refreshing and engaging and I, I loved talking to him and interviewing because you can just sit back and let the honesty wash over you and he got himself into a little bit of stickiness during the jury this year because obviously he didn't have the form to race as he would have wanted to at the Giro. It's, it, when you miss most of the spring with an injury, you can't gain that fitness back very easily. And UAE were there with Joao Almeida, so he was riding in support of Almeida, and he was looking at 
what he could do in the race as well. And he was feeling a bit sick. And I think the the interview that he gave before one of the stages pulled out of him the, the sense that he wasn't there to ride around and try and get a place in the top 10. And he said he just wasn't interested, not interesting to him, just didn't want to. There's no gain in it for him. There's no extra pay for him. He doesn't get a bonus for that. There's no literally no point in him riding around to the space in the top 10 because what he has been contracted to at UAE is ride for riders like Almeida or to ride himself for a podium position or to ride for stage wins. So in the position he was in at the Giro, with him suffering from bronchitis, I think it was, he wasn't in a position to ride for the top 10. What's the point in even doing that? And he wasn't really in a position to ride for a stage win because he had, you know, had to spend a few days recovering, trying to get round as best he can. Still did some okay work at the race, but he was there just to help Joao Almeida as best he could. And that was how it came across. Obviously, he got criticised on social media for disrespecting those riders who would find a place in the top, an extraordinary achievement. And that's fine for them. But for him, he honestly, he felt and said that that's not what he was there for. And I, I think that's fair enough. We like straight shooters. Like Greg was like, has always been like that, Ben Arvermott. And uh, no, it's refreshing because every team now is, is, is very filtered with communications or they go, they, a lot of these writers are getting training, what to say when, you know, and it can start to sound redundant. Those sorts of quotes are a dime a dozen, you know, and so when you get somebody breaking the mold and really answering what sounds to be sincere is, is refreshing and you know, as journalists, we, we have to celebrate that. Yep. And he is appearing at Ruler Live as well. So, yeah, I'm hoping that his talk will be even more unfiltered than the interview he, he gave me. And he's, he's driving up in his Bentley. He loves cars, Jay Ryan, so he's going to be driving up in his Bentley. And can't wait to see him in the flesh. Also in the magazine, the art cycle piece, this edition, is about a work by Natalia Goncharova, a female Russian artist who was, I guess, a futurist, which is why she fitted perfectly in the Futurology edition. And her most famous work is called Cyclist. So tell us about that work, James. I discovered Gontarova a long time ago because you know, I got a master's in art history. And my advisor at the time was a real specialist of, of, of Russian art, and particularly modern Russian art. And so she was a big champion of, of Gontarova. And Gontarova is such a groundbreaking artist. I mean... She was very respected in her circles and, and was exhibited with all of the greats. Just a real pioneer. So it was great to get back and to retouch touch bases with her and study her work again. I actually reconnected with Janet Kennedy, my old uh, mentor, and she went back into her archives to think a little bit about uh, Goncharova and come up with some insight that I thought was interesting. And what the bicycle meant in Russian culture at the time. This is just before... World, the outbreak of, of the war and then the Russian Revolution is pretty fascinating. She was, I believe, uh, technically a Cubo-futurist. So what's the difference between a Cubo-futurist and a futurist? Well, it was, I think, more more about where these movements kind of came from. You know, pure futurism was really an Italian movement. And I believe the Cubo-futurist was uh, very much a combination of that. And it was very popular for a spell in Russia. What was the ethos of futurist artists, just so our listeners can get up to speed? Well, they broke out form, human form and objects in the real world in, in a similar way to the cubes, but they had much more of an interest in, for one, movement, moving through time and into the future, speed, movement, these things. And so a lot of their paintings 
uh, and artworks captured movement in, in a very unique way. And so something like the bicycle was the perfect vector for that. That's why this is considered one of the, the real masterpieces of, of that genre. And, and they just saw movement as something that was just constantly take us into the future, was constantly regenerating, was constantly just modern. They really focused on that as opposed to, say, the the Cubists in France, you know, with, with Brock and, and Picasso, who did lots of still lives. I'd say that was the biggest or one of the most evident uh, differences between, say, Cubism and Futurism. The problem was how to convey movement in a static painting. And Contra over Cyclist, obviously, it is a static painting, but you can see that movement. And lastly, it wouldn't be a Futurology magazine without the latest in bike technology and bike design. You wrote about two very different bikes, the Lapierre Obvious and Sweet Aquis. Can you tell us about those two bikes, what they're about and how they differ from each other? Well, the Lapierre bike we've, we've seen before, you know, um, but it was really the design that was so special as they partnered up with this collective of artists using artificial intelligence in the visual arts. And they've designed a wonderful, beautiful, really great um, Alpine sports car. And uh, they work with Nike and some others. Uh, and they got hired by... Um, by Lapierre to do the official Tour de France bicycle last year. And I saw it at the tour. I was like, this is stunning. And so we, we decided we were going to do something uh, focusing on that. And then this new bicycle brand is just, just coming out called Sweet, S-W-I. And it's a combination of Swiss and Italian creativity, let's call it. Uh, a lot of some of the Swiss technology and manufacturing and the Italian creativity if you want uh, that's very generalized but um let's just break it down as that for the moment an amazing one-piece monocoque carbon fiber frame that's been designed along with former professionals paolo bettini uh, no need for introduction there um, world champion olympic champion luca paolini just another uh, you know very experienced professional and they've been really working closely with with this company this new startup to um, come up with a an amazing bike not only in, in construction and conception but in look it's a gorgeous bike and i learned a lot about you know carbon technology the making of uh, the different ovens that they're using to produce and the special ovens that uh, were needed to produce this monocoque one-piece carbon frame and the hours of work that go into it layering layer after layer of carbon fiber around the tube or you know the fork or wherever then it takes at least two days two and a half days at best to produce one of them and that's not just one person that's several people working together i mean it's very labor intense but uh anybody who has one of these is going to be very proud to be riding it great looking bikes and sweet are going to be at rudo live also in the magazine uh rachel jarry wrote us a piece about the miami blazers uh criterion team in the states they're from uh focusing on an interview with Dante Young and this very Florida, very American article. Uh, you're, you're, you're American, James. I know you're an adopted Parisian, but explain to me the fascination briefly with criterion racing in the States. How did that happen? I'm not sure. Did it come out of our, you know, track racing was very big in the States uh, in, in between the wars and things like that. Did it come out of that? Did it come out of just 
convenience because Americans couldn't understand shutting down their roads for so long and such for such long stretches. I always thought it was kind of like that. It was much easier to, I think, for a small time sport that bicycle bicycle racing was for so long in America to get more than say a one mile circuit closed off in a downtown, and and it's you know it created its own breed of racing and it's a special breed of racing. I mean it's it's hard racing. I I never suffered as much in in bike races as I did sometimes in crits because it's all about power and you're whipping around some of those turns and one one error in placement you you can be gapped and you only got so many so many cartridges you can use in that, that kind of, it's like the track I mean you really you only have so many shots to keep your position it's a very unique sport in American and the criterion the closed circuit really gives way to the spectator sport aspect of it um, it can be very dramatic and stuff so yeah it was a, it was a tremendous piece. I was it was took me back to when I was racing crits. Just came across as really, really colourful, really exciting. Uh, so that's the Miami Blazers cycling team. We've also got a feature about riding the Tracker gravel race down uh, down near Girona. Um, we've got a piece about the the Canyon Grail, uh, which has been ridden by Alec Briggs of Techers. I've got an interview with Angelo Gotti, who is the owner of Cask and Coup. Got a piece about Project Speed which is a collaboration between BMC and the Red Bull F1 team, and many, many more features. So that's Ruler 123, the Futurology edition. Ruler Conversations listeners can get 15% off the regular price of a Ruler subscription by going to ruler.cc slash subscribe and entering the code PODCAST15. By subscribing, you are supporting our journalism and enabling us to put out more excellent magazines. Physical magazines are things of beauty and tactility. So please subscribe to enjoy the unique reading experience of a physical magazine. But you can also subscribe to our app, which offers an electronic version of the magazine, plus all our web stories from ruler.cc, plus the Ruler Conversations podcasts, and an archive of the mag. And of course, don't forget, buy your Ruler Live tickets with the code RLPODCAST to get 10% off, and come visit me, James, and the rest of the editorial staff in our creative hub or office space out on the shop floor of Rudeau Live. James, I'll see you in London. You will. Can't wait. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine or visit our website at Ruler.cc. This edition of Ruler Conversations was produced by Joseph Perry of Content is Queen. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.